Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis security and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, it's great, as always, to have you back with us today on the Allegorical Life podcast. Now, we're talking about one of your recent blog posts, which is called A World of Perpetual Anger and Rage. Mark, why do you think people are so dissatisfied at the moment? Uh, Geez, you're starting with a good question, a big question, aren't you? Um, look, I, I think there's um, many reasons for that. I, I think um, if you take politics, for example, uh, you know, much of Western democratic politics has relied, um, you know, reasonably uh, substantially on ideologies of, um, you know, sort of Labor and Liberal or Conservatives and Democrats in the US, and and people have aligned uh, with those ideologies to to greater or lesser degrees, and they may not even understand that. They're ideological, but they kind of speak to values. Um, but something's changed in the world, and, and I use two examples when I speak about this publicly about the US and the UK. So in the US, with Donald Trump, who's really anything but ideological. I mean, he's you know he's a, a man of very strong opinions, but they're not ideological opinions. What they are is they're opinions of sentiment. And, and he tapped into um, middle-class America prior to the last presidential election and gave an expression to the sentiment of those people. And that sentiment was largely anger. People were very angry that they felt they'd been ignored by the ideologies, ignored by the major parties and their ideological positioning. And um, so what got Trump into power, in my view, was um, uh, the understanding and the capturing of the expression of sentiment which is very much about how people feel, followed by what they think, but feeling tends to dominate. Um, if you go to the UK and you look at Brexit, neither Jeremy Corbyn nor Theresa May have an ideological superiority over Brexit. Um, uh, both of their constituencies uh, are d- very divided on the issue of uh, leaving the European Union. So, so they can't come at it ideologically. Again, it's another expression of sentiment and the dissatisfaction of people in society. So we've got this um, shift, I think, from ideological premise in our politics and, and and our hopes and our beliefs as a society or as a community, and people are saying, look, that no longer speaks to me. Uh, it's not binary, by the way, so it's not one over the other, but it is a question of emphasis. And I think what's being emphasised in Western politics and Western democracies, and we probably saw it in the Arab Spring as well, in the Middle East was how people feel and they're not happy. And it's very hard for politics ideologically to respond to that because it doesn't necessarily, the way we've traditionally understood it, make sense. So you can't necessarily rationalise it. You can't argue it out. You can't premise it on a philosophical underpinning or an ideological underpinning that speaks to the masses. So so it is a question of emphasis. It's not a binary issue. I'm not saying the ideologies aren't important. 
or aren't influential because they are and they will continue to be. But I think I think what's really happening is that people have, you know, been pretty much been told for a long time that, you know, don't trust how you feel or, you know, feelings are subordinate to what you think or what rational thought and reason, you know, argues in society. And I don't think that's working anymore. So I think there has to be a, a reconciliation between, you know, the, the, the logics, the reasons, uh, the, you know, the empirical evidence, that, that you know, the quantification of data, all those things that we so heavily rely upon in society it has to be rebalanced with expressions of emotionality and how people feel and the sentiments that follow. So a really tricky time for Western uh, democracy. Um, it's certainly changing as we understand it. Um, the Buddhists and the Hindus would say, you know, we, we presently live in degenerate times, which means really everything's collapsing. Uh, and if you look around, that's kind of what's happening. You know, institutions are up against the wall. There was a, another call this week for yet another Royal Commission, um, this time into the disability sector. So, you know, if that gets up, that's the disability sector, the banking sector, as well as finance sector and investment sector, but also the churches, the institutional religions, um, and aged care. And, and they are all institutions of society that are all under pressure and under attack. Um, for their perceived lack of ethics and, and for the amount of abuse and poor treatment of people that's going on inside those institutions. Now, those institutions are reflective of broader society, essentially, that, we, you know, we operate uh, where we live in an institutional world in the West. We, that's how we manage our societies through institutional frames. So, so again, it's indicative, if you look into the Royal Commission world, how much harm and suffering and abuse and anger is going on? Well, according to those commissions, it's rife. And um, and so I think we've got a real problem. And that's why I wrote about it in the blog, that I think there is a perpetual state of rage and anger going on. I'm not necessarily sure people understand why they're angry. Um, and certainly, you know, my you know, small and probably irrelevant experience in the world when I talk to people suggests that they certainly don't know. They're just not happy. And... Um, so it could be that that we have spent a long time seeking happiness outside of ourselves um, and certainly in Western democracy with uh, what's as an ideology is now coined uh, neoliberalism. So it's you know very much about being an individual, um, being self-sufficient, entrepreneurial, uh, you know, a, a zero reliance upon governments and other institutions, the ability to stand on your own two feet, and really to put yourself above and be better than everybody else to compete in a market um, is is kind of uh, the, affecting people enormously and because it's not natural. It's not where we naturally operate. We naturally operate as a collective. We naturally operate through a more compassionate framing. Mark, do you think that the anger being expressed across the world is justified? Uh, you know, I'll come at it as a philosopher. Um, no, it's not. But it does exist, so it's an it's an aspect of the human mind that exists, and therefore it has to be dealt with, and and that has to start with being acknowledged. But acknowledging it is not enough. So I, I get a little frustrated when I see notions of mindfulness being promoted in organisations, and and you know people people sort of running courses on mindfulness, and 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 they vary, of course. I mean, people have different perceptions about that, but. What they tend to do is leave the ethics out of mindfulness. So what they say is, look, you need to be mindful of where you're at and accept whatever is rising, you just accept it and that's the way the world is. And 
And so that's kind of, that's a good start. But when anger turns up, you got to keep going and you've got to say, you know what, okay, it's there, I get it, it exists. But then there's an ethical uh, notion there and that, and that is, and then we have to say, but you know what, that's actually not acceptable. So, so what 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 am I going to do about it to to alleviate it, to move it on, to to release that energy because it's kind of an energy of the mind. What what do I do to to, to beneficially and as with as least the least amount of harm possible to myself and others, expend that energy? Now, some people go out and run around the block, get on the bike, and you know, go for a swim or go to the gym or dig a hole, you know, whatever, and they get rid of it physically, and that's a great strategy. But some people yell at others and some people point fingers of blame and some people, you know, externalise all the problems of the world onto other people or other entities or institutions or what have you. That's kind of not helpful. So so I think there, there is this question, that is it ever justified? And I, I talk a lot about this in terms of um, public debates and, you know, trying to move uh, political agendas forward. In Australia, we're kind of lucky, really. We don't have... We've got an open system of government and a safe system of government, and people can express their views and, and generally speaking, do it quite responsibly, you know, with, with little amounts of harm, and that's a good thing. But in some countries, that's not available to them, so violence enters. And, and there's a really tricky question here about, you know, to what extent is violence, uh, uh, you know, which comes, which leads to harm, which is derived from anger, of course, is that justified or useful and it's a very hard question to answer but if you take it to its end point um, what tends to happen is that violence promotes violence and so there's a cycle that goes on there's a perpetuating cycle now I'm not suggesting if we all stop being angry in the world that all the problems will go away but what I am suggesting is that if we don't address it directly and say look until you get that out of out of our system our societal systems our social systems our community systems our family systems and our minds until you start to genuinely work on that and dissipate it and come up with alternative views of expression then that harm is not going to stop and I often say to people in leadership you know and in fact in academia they talk about anger being a motivator for compassion and as a Buddhist, I would say, well, not possible, really, because you can't hold two, two of those uh, aspects of mind. You can't hold them in your mind at the one time. You're either angry or compassionate. You can't be both. And the, the more you're angry, the less compassionate you are. And anger is blinding, of course. So, but there is, there is another way of tackling it, and it's about, it's a, about assertiveness and strength of character and determination and perseverance and there are two really good examples in the world of this, um, and that was Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, who, who both, um, Mandela particularly, started on a path of violence because he was very angry. He was very angry about the um, about apartheid in South Africa and the lack of freedom, and and justifiably so. You could, no, no one in the modern age could argue anything but that that sense of injustice and all that came with it was... Um, was legitimate, and it was. But he learned. I mean, the, just before he went to prison, he was essentially becoming a terrorist. He was starting to blow up public infrastructure to get his message across. And it was the ANC who he belonged and led. I think he led it at the time. Um, well, it's alleged at least that they dobbed him in because he was a wanted man. He was on the run, and um, and and he was he was dobbed in, and they arrested him, and of course he ended up in prison. Um, he, he actually 
potentially face the death sentence, but the judge wouldn't make him a martyr, so they sent him to Robben Island for 27 years. But but in that time, he learnt that anger was useless, really, and, and it was kind of poisonous. And he said as he left the prison, you know, essentially he said, I, had to, I really had to get and I had to understand that all of that anger and toxicity I had to leave behind the prison wall because if I didn't, it would continue to imprison me for the rest of my life. Um, the, the Buddha said that, you know, why, why is it? Because anger is seen as poisonous to the mind in Buddha's thought. Why would you drink poison and expect someone else to die? Uh, it's, it's just profound, you know, and, and that's what anger does, that we swallow it, you know, we experience it and we expect someone else to suffer because of it. We expect someone else to change or someone else to accord with our view, yet we're the ones who are, is, who are experiencing the anger. So, so I don't think it's ever justified. I think it exists and whilst ever it exists, we need to deal with it. I do think we need to be more skillful in all of our public debates all of our arguments with our kids or our wives, it doesn't matter really. How do, you, how do you dissipate it? How do you replace it? How do you turn it into something more productive, more useful? Uh, ethics speaks a lot to this. Psychology speaks a lot to it, of course, and speak to any social worker or counsel or a psychotherapist, and, they, and they're constantly dealing with anger. Um, but even talking to some of those, there's, there's a, an assumption that it's okay to be angry on some level. And and I'm saying, well, I'm not sure that it's okay. I get that it exists and it has to be dealt with and acknowledged. You certainly can't swallow it. It's got to be expressed, but it needs to be expressed as as safely as possible. But ultimately, it needs to be dissipated. And what dissipates anger? Patience, kindness, love, consideration of others, care, tolerance. All of those things will dissipate anger, will we'll actually move it on. But those things in society are seen as soft, because uh, this is what neoliberalism says about those things. It says, oh, you know, you're not tough enough. If you're going to be compassionate or care for others and be kind, then you're not tough enough to, to, to operate in the market. And so people feel compelled to be tough, of course. Um, a great living example today of someone who's taking a stand against anger uh, is Jacinta Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister. And she has three, uh, three things that any Cabinet Minister must contemplate and respond to before an item comes to cabinet. And that is kindness, empathy, and well-being. And any initiative that comes forward to government has to address those things. Now, she is the first leader in the world that I'm aware of that is, is directly confronting the ethical challenges of government and society. And, and having, you know, from time to time, work, I work with the New Zealand government, um, and, I, and I know quite a few New Zealanders uh, as I do that, um, that has uplifted that country something extraordinary. And it won't be done perfectly. Ethics is never perfect. They're, in themselves, they're perfections, but we're not perfect at them. But you kind of like to think if we continue to practice and take them seriously that we'll get better, and that's really all life ever asks of us, just to get better, then good on her for showing the leadership and good on the country for embracing it and good on them for taking the risk of, of shifting their, their narratives and shifting their, their ethics to something that's far more amenable to what people need. And I think you'll find that New Zealand will be one of those countries that's not shouting from the top of the hilltops about how unhappy they are. And, um, and time will tell. I think they're, already, you know, they're close to the top of the hill now, but let's see what happens in the next couple of years. So. You're listening to the Allegorical Life podcast. 
Mark, can you explain this idea that you refer to in your blog post, which is the idea of virtue signalling? Yeah, certainly. Look, um, and I can use, a, again, another practical example. I mean, it's now February 2019, just for the record, and we've just been through a really big flood in Townsville, one of the biggest floods on record up in that part of the world. Some, some parts of that community received two metres of rain in 10 days. That's 2,000 millimetres of rain in 10 days, so it's a significant event. Um, I, I don't want to put names, to, uh, attribute names to these things, so I'll stay clear of that, but there was some commentary in the the media um, of, of, uh, in the political sphere of uh, basically saying to insurance companies and banks and others that, you know, you've been so shamed in the Royal Commission, which we just had recently about their behaviour, and um, that you need to pull your socks up, you need to get up there and show some compassion and, and, and you know, help these people out who are doing it really tough. And so essentially what that means is that somebody's picked up a very, very valuable object called compassion. So it's very valuable and they've thrown it at somebody and they've pitched it at them. And I often use the imagery of um, of a cudgel. So a cudgel is the thing, you know, way back when we were in the caves, a cudgel was something you belted someone else over the head with. And that's, you know, that was pretty much the, we- the weapon of war. And um, we often use it in morality. So we, we become righteous and we become mighty and we hold a virtue or we hold an ethic and we beat somebody else up with it. And, we, and, and, and what that tends to do is it tends to be offensive because people say, well, you know, what gives you the right to impose your will upon another? And if you're righteous about it or you, you lack a humility, um, then I think the criticism is valid. And so what virtue signaling does is people criticise others for having a lack of virtue or a lack of ethic, implying that their ethics are better or higher, or more perfect, but actually not doing anything about it themselves. So they're quite happy to commentate. But if you were to look into their own world, you'd realise that you know those very ethics that they're espousing are largely absent, or certainly need more work on. And the religions have talked about this for years. You know, um, I mean, in Christian thought, I think they speak about, you know. Um, um, uh, you know, don't talk about the speck in someone else's eye when you've got a plank in your own, you know. And 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 Buddha said the same thing, be very careful with ethics because ultimately you need to transcend ethics. Ultimately there is no difference between you and I. There is no difference between self and other. You know, that's, that's, that's taking its philosophy, you know, to the point of the brink of enlightenment and most of us are miles away from that. So ethics is important and it's certainly important in Buddhist thought about no harm to self or other through actions of body, speech or mind. Uh, and that's very much an ethical premise. So so virtue signaling, kind of, and you'll see it play out in politics on both sides, um, but it's not only in politics. It happens in, in society as well. It happens in um, a lot of the social commentators will often throw the ethic at somebody else. We've got to move away from that and have a much more sophisticated and mature conversation about what is important to us as a society. So... Compassion is often thrown about. It's it's one of the dangers of, it's part of my PhD, of course, compassion, and, and it's coming out in spades that um, it's, it's it's dangerous insofar as it can be it can be really easily misused, and uh, in order to try and leverage or wedge or shame, and it's such a it's such a pity because it's the most fundamental thing we have as a humanity. Uh, it's what brings ultimately brings a sense of purpose and meaning and happiness in life, and yet we're quite happy to package it up and throw it at someone. And so the reason I commented on it was to say, look, 
ethics is important and conversations around ethics are critical really if we're going to get you know past this societal anger and move to a better world but unless we become more skillful in how we navigate those conversations unless we're more respectful about the needs of others and the faults of our own i've said for a long time when i speak about this publicly that i think the the the, the greatest um, skill in ethics is to speak to the principle and be very grounded in your thinking. So, so have enormous amounts of humility when you speak to ethics because ironically, and I used to learn this when I, when I uh, taught Buddhist philosophy, that when I was giving the lesson, uh, uh, which I was asked to give, it could have been on kindness or anger or patience or love, I'd finish the class and there might be 20 people in the room, could be 40, there could be five, it just depends who turned up on the night. But I finished the class and realised that the greatest um, uh, student of that lesson was me. So here I was teaching it um, and as best as I could and and imparting some philosophy to others as an act of kindness as a Buddhist. And I would inevitably walk out of the centre and go, I, I think I got the most benefit out of that <laughs> because I think I needed to hear it from myself as well. So ethics will always be about anything you speak to will will have a, a degree of self-reflection in it because because you realise probably subconsciously that it's absent in your own life, which is why it's become important. So you're seeing it, you think the world's missing it and, it, and it probably is. You know, we're not unique. Probably is missing it, but we're overstating it. And so if, if people say you're not being compassionate enough, there's probably some truth in that. But guess what? Nor are you. You know, so the person throwing it is also not compassionate enough. And, and so if you rebalance the conversation and you say, look, none of us are compassionate enough, we need to be more compassionate to the people in Townsville, we all do, then you've got a whole different conversation and a whole different range of possibilities about how to help people. And lastly, Mark, what is the better alternative to virtue signalling? Um, so I think we've got to develop the skills to be much more mature and sophisticated in navigating the ultimate complexities of ethics because they are so important to us. Uh, they do vary from person to person on the margins, but there are some fundamentals about being human which are, I think are, um, are uh, pretty crystal clear. And, and again, I, I go back to really simple statements in religion, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, which is a, a, you know, it's a very Abrahamic um, faith. It comes from... Uh, Judaism and Christianity, but but it's it's a it's a truth. And as I said in Buddhist thought, it's you know uh, no harm to self or other through actions of body, speech, or mind. Um, and it kind of says that I'll, I'll do nothing to you that I wouldn't do to myself. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't hurt. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt you. You know, I I, I want to be happy. I want you to be happy. And let, let's try and have a sophisticated narrative in society that explores that and there'll still be difference of course there will there'll be difference but what a different conversation to start with and and maybe then the anger and the rage in society will lessen i've got no doubt that it will um and we'll still have complexity to navigate you know the world is not static we don't we never arrive we we live in a continuum but what if that continuum was more harmonious what if that continuum was more peaceful had, had a greater sense of happiness or meaning and purpose um in whatever you did, really, for as long as you lived or as short as you lived, that that continuum, that experience was overall more meritorious, more happier, more beneficial, more caring, more kind, more considerate. That, that, that has to be 
ultimately the test of a good life. And wouldn't you? Wouldn't we want that for everybody? Why? Why would you not want that for even your worst enemy? If you realise that the reason that he or she is angry and acting out is probably because it's the very thing they don't have. If they had those things, they probably wouldn't be angry. They probably wouldn't be causing you the grief that you perceive or that they are causing you or, in fact, are causing you. Either way, it doesn't matter whether it's perceived or real. Um, I think the whole thing would shift. Thanks for joining us today on The Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.